All right, everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of The Few. And no doubt your journey to becoming one of the few yourself is maybe a challenging one at the moment. We have interest rates through the roof, inflation ever increasing. No matter where we look at the moment, it seems we're in an everything bubble and it's easy to become disconnected. It's easy to find everything maybe more difficult or the perception that it's more difficult than it actually is. So I'm very excited, very excited about my guest today who I, I know very well. He's a, a wonderful human being, incredibly generous, but also has one eye on the future as well as uh, being very grounded in today. He's an expert on human behavior. He is a emerging thought leader in the AI space. I don't think there's an area of life or humanity that this guest here hasn't touched upon at some point, but most importantly, he is an incredible human being. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce him now. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Michael McQueen, thank you so much for being on The Few. Thank you so much. Great to be able to chat. It is. This is very special. Just about to jump on a plane over to the US as our last podcast in Australia before we head over there. But Michael, before we start, I just want to ask you a very simple question. Are you living the life you've always wanted to live at the moment? Yeah, this is the dream. Hey, it's funny how when you get to the dream, it often feels like harder work than you imagined the dream would be like when you first dreamed it. But it is. So yeah, I'm on the speaker circuit daily. So sort of most weeks would be three to five conferences. And I love the variety of that. I'm loving being back in front of live audiences, not just on Zoom, as we all were over the last few years. And so those little things like the conversations with audience members afterwards, the ability to travel to cool places, meet interesting people, talk about valuable and worthwhile and interesting content. Yeah, it's the dream. I love it. Let's back the truck up here a little bit and do a proper introduction. So Michael McQueen, I would say is undoubtedly the top speaker in Australia. If we look at over 2.1 million people on LinkedIn have the title speaker in their title, Michael would be in Australia number one and in the world, easily one of the top five speakers. When you look at that, mate, and you think about the aspiration to become a speaker yep. and the reality of making it a career, of commercializing that intent. It's a big question. How does one bring those two worlds together? How do you become one of the few that turns that dream into reality? I know it's not easy. Yeah. But what would you say are maybe three core lessons you've learned along the way that's enabled you to get there? And this is a frank conversation. We explore spirituality. We explore the earthly elements of our lives as well. So what do you believe is the gravity that's pulled you along, the wind that's pushed you along? And what is it that's helped you live this life to to be one of the few? Well, it's a big question, but it's a good one, isn't it? So my journey to this whole world started when I was pretty young. So I was only eight years of age when I decided to become a speaker. That's very strange. There's not many eight-year-olds who are dreaming of that. You know, most of them would only be an astronaut or a a fighter pilot. Did you see a speaker? Um, I did. So I I was tagged along with my parents to a conference for their work. The babysitter fell through and I'm one of five boys. So we had the tribe and the tribe tagged along to this conference in Melbourne and um, sat at the back of the auditorium um, with probably you know, books to read or colouring or you know, Game Boys or something. 
but there was a speaker on the platform that day who spoke for about 45 minutes and there was a, you know, maybe three, three and a half thousand people in the room and she just held that room. And I was just, even as an eight-year-old, fascinated with the craft of a, a great communicator. And it was just, it was funny as we walked out that day, I remember saying to mum and dad, I think that's what I want to do. Wow. And they were polite as parents are when kids say outlandish things that are their dreams. Like, oh, okay, that would be great, wouldn't it? But I don't think really thought much more of it, but it was like a seed that was planted. And from that point forward, that was the goal. And so I always enjoyed listening to great communicators. If there were opportunities at school to have to do upfront stuff, I sort of gravitated towards that. When I finished um, university, I did a commerce degree at uni, so fairly generic. Didn't quite know exactly how to use that, but I thought it was a good grounding for anything in businesses to study business. I imagine at that point as well, there's a big jump between wanting to be a speaker and being one. I mean, you need all the knowledge, right? And you need the life experience. So what were your thoughts? I mean, how were you going to create something to speak about? Well, I wasn't that clever. I was not that strategic. You know, it's always easy to trace the path when you look back and go, this led to this, led to this, led to this. It's never that simple as you're looking forward into that path, not sure the, the direction it'll take. So I had that sense of, I guess, a calling, like I was made to do this, a real passion for it. Not a passion for a particular topic necessarily, but more just for that craft, that art of being able to encourage and inspire and help people on the platform and just what that art form is. I, just, I loved the notion of that. So I finished this degree in commerce, connected with a couple of people over the next six to 12 months when I moved to Sydney, because I didn't grow up in the big smoke. I moved, grew up on the South Coast in a steel city. So Wollongong, for those in the States that don't know, it's like Pittsburgh <laughs> of Australia. And so I moved up to Sydney, met a few people who are on the circuit. And so they gave me just advice and mentoring around how to find your thing, your topic. And the reality was I was only 22. So you can't be an authority on much when you're 22, truly, because you're 22. And I thought, how do I use this as a, an asset? So essentially, at the time, the big topic that was dominating the news headlines and the business press was around generational change, the baby boomers versus Gen X versus Gen Y. I mean, Generation Z or Gen Z weren't even on the radar at that point. And I was a millennial or a Gen Y thinking everyone's talking about this. And I was seeing it in the first job I had post-uni was at a, in a software company. I could see the conflict between generations. And I thought everyone pretty much who's speaking about this is an older generation person speaking about youth culture. What if a young person stepped into the mix talking about what's happening in youth culture based from that perspective as a young person? But that's person. incredible insight. I mean, to have that awareness at that age, to be able to, to have that conversation. Again, you look back on it, you say nothing happened on purpose or it wasn't yeah. strategic. There has to be a degree of strategy there because you had the idea and the purpose of being a communicator, which meant that you obviously had your eyes and ears out looking for that opportunity. And then when it presented itself. Exactly. I think where the strategy came in is I did a body of research on generational change, but it was all the theory. And I thought that's not sufficient. Like you've got to have more than just having read a whole lot of books and a lot of the latest research in this stuff. So what I thought the gap was, was the ability to know what's exactly happening in youth culture at the time. And so I thought the only way to do that is to go to where the young people are. And so I started a program working in high schools to help 16 and 17 year olds understand older generations, because it's got to be a two way street. And so that's where I started, ran that program, had a team of speakers helping me run that program around Australia and then beyond a bit overseas. Over three and a bit years, worked with 80,000 students. And we would do research at the back of the program. So I'd get a sense of what's happening in youth culture based on those surveys. I collated all that, married it up with the research and the theory stuff I'd done initially, and then wrote my first book about sort of generational change and how to bridge those gaps. And that was what propelled me then into the corporate side. So helping leaders and you know, government policymakers and school teachers, anyone who's trying to understand younger generations, get a sense of how to do that. So that was the sort of the foray then into the corporate world. And that's that the scope has broadened from looking at demographic change to looking at technology change and social trends and consumer trends and 
Now, some of the psychology stuff and the neuroscience I've looked at recently around change, that's sort of the next iteration, but that's where it all started. But it's all an awareness, you see. It's the ability to find information in the context of today and as best projecting that into the future. Rewind a bit, sorry. My ADHD comes out on these podcasts every now and again. <laughs> Five boys, that was yeah. the sibling balance, all boys? Correct, all wow. boys. Yeah. Where did you fit in the stack? So I was second, which second, you know, okay. doesn't really match any of the like birth the chief of order things. Yeah. It's basically like a, a nondescript <laughs> birth order, isn't it? And yes, I had one of those classic alpha male firstborn older brothers who was annoyingly intelligent, you know, so he did his year 12 leaving exam. I, I think he hardly studied and he got, he was 97.8 or something wow. like, in which, you know, in the scale is incredibly high. Hard to stay motivated high. in there. I know. In of that, isn't it? And it wasn't my, like, academics was never my thing. So I'm from a family of scientists and I'm not particularly scientific I'm more than the average person, but compared to my family, not so much. No, but I like where you're going with that around academia. Again, for yep. me, I repeated year 12 and I was wow, yeah. really poor academically. Yep. And I feel like there's a behavioral side of learning and there's the scientific method, which is definitely a way of learning and a way of innovating. But I think there's also a creative side of providing insight, something that's outside the lane. And it's really fascinating. I love this whole nature nurture thing, right? Where you can have one of your siblings is so very analytical and another one that I have a beef against academia. You're, you're judged on your academic record, right? And for many of us, that it's not very good, but that doesn't mean you don't add value, yeah? So how did you reconcile that? Did you ever feel like it was important to be really academic? And the main reason I have this conversation is people who are listening who also struggle academically. And it's something where people give up because if I can't get my degree or I've always struggled through school, I must be stupid, right? I mustn't have the intellect. So how did you reconcile that? And what was the process you went through during school? Was it something, was it a source of stress or something you just accepted? Well, so what I realized is that compared to my older brother, I wasn't going to be an effortlessly great student, but I had to figure out what worked for me. And so the good thing is I had a couple of friends who went to another school nearby. I went to the government school, which was a good school, but not a great school. It was just standard sort of, you know, stock standard government school. But a couple of my friends went to a private school where they had, they had an allocated study tutor. So they'd meet with their study tutor every week and they'd have like, plotted out how many days or hours per day that allocate to different subjects. So they were very intentional about how they prepared for exams. So I guess I'm competitive. So I'm like, well, if they're doing, let's say, and we, I remember going to one of the, the two-week school holiday breaks and one of my friends boasted, she said, I'm going to do, I think it was something like 56 hours of study. She'd mapped out what she was going to do. I'm like, well, if she's doing 56, I'm going to do 60. So like, <laughs> that became the challenge. That became the benchmark. And so I, I got really good at carving up my time and being very intentional about study because it wasn't natural. It wasn't effortless, but I knew if I worked hard and I was deliberate, I could do okay. So I, I did well enough, did pretty well in my year 12 exam. But, but, but it, it was, was the effort, right? Correct. And just... Knowing what worked for me, I think this is what the lessons then have played out through the entirety of my career since. So when I have a book to write or you know, stuff to prepare for keynotes, I know exactly how to carve up my time. And it's not just time management, it's energy management. That's what I've really, and I learned that back at a 16, 17, but 18 year old. But they're together. Energy Correct. and time coexist. Uh -huh. Stretching little energy over a long period of time is incredibly fatiguing. Yep. That ability or what the military would call concentration of firepower. Yeah. Maximum yep. energy and effort in the minimum amount of time. That's really insightful. Do you think that competitive spirit comes from being the silver medalist in the birth order? Maybe. Yeah. It's funny because I'm the least sporty person you will ever meet, which is very un-Australian. Like, You're I, sporty. You feel like tough mudder and yes, I running do. around I, doing I, I, I'm a crossfitter. So I love fitness. I guess I'm competitive in that sense. But I was never a team sport player. I sort of swam competitively, but it wasn't like, you know, some people are competitive in that, that alpha male sense. That's not me. I'm probably more driven by competing against myself. You know, that idea of constantly trying to improve. I love that. That's probably the thing that really 
excites me and that probably what continues to propel me. It's like, well, what am I doing this month that's a bit better than last month as opposed to looking sideways of how are others doing and how am I going in comparison to? So, yes, I think there is a degree of competitiveness, whether it's a birth order thing, I don't know. I think also, I mean, depends how you slice and dice yourself, isn't it? I mean, you could look at the disc profiles or the Myers-Briggs you know, there's so many ways of understanding. I was looking at the Enneagram recently and there's so much um, wisdom in that as well. Mm. And I think some of it's temperament. I think the fact that it's, I'm pretty structured and ordered and I like to measure. And so I measure time and energy and output, which makes me probably sound incredibly boring, but I'm super efficient. And so I'm very intentional even about time off and time with family and time for fitness and time for spirituality. Like everything's intentional for me, which I think it just works. Being intentional is so powerful. Uh, and I, for my journey, without realizing I had ADHD, but being put into an incredibly structured environment, which is training to be a fighter pilot uh -huh. over a period of three years, you learn how valuable it is to have time off, to commit to something, to value sleep as yeah. well, not to cram and to understand a little bit more about the human being and how we work. And I think one of the challenges with being human, and I'd love to get your insight is, it's great that we have all these methods of measuring our personalities yeah. or our emotions and our, and our states of mind, but the complexity of us is so far beyond what we at a scientific level believe, if you look at it from a spiritual level, how complex we are, yet we crave, I believe, we crave these labels in order to bring that structure and order to our life, yeah. which is to say, I'm an alpha personality, so that me, that's why I'm yelling at everyone all the time, because yeah. that's just who I am as opposed to I'm a blank canvas, really. I'm, I'm plasticine. Uh, what's your opinion on that in terms of a person's ability to morph, to change strengths, weaknesses? Like yeah. how, how do you define a human? We love labels. We always push against them and say, you know, don't box me. I'm a unique individual. We all want to think that. And we are, of course, unique in, at, at a very core level. But we also do love boxes and labels in the sense that, you know, whenever I talk about generational profiles and I still, funnily enough, I still talk about some of that research. It's moved on because now it's talking about different generations who are now the young punks. It's not millennials anymore. They're all getting old like I am. But like people still love, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, Gen Z or Gen Z. Yeah, I can see that that's my kids. Mm -hmm. or that's my grandkids. Or you know what? Yeah, I'm being such a Gen X in the way I do this. So, There's a lot of people with that label, I know. right? I'm like, wow. Okay, it's so <laughs> funny that people still, they love the labels. They love to do the personality things and go, oh, man, it just described me to a T. Even people who resist this idea of being boxed, we still like labels because they help us make sense of ourselves and others. So I think there's a natural desire for labels, and I think we're seeing that happen. And it's funny, you mentioned ADHD. The number of my close friends in the last 18 months who've been diagnosed as adults with ADHD, because it was, I mean, just, it was so poorly understood you know, when we were kids. And I, I think I see that label, even for some of them, it's a source of great comfort. They're like, oh, now I understand myself. Now I know why I do this, this and this. But what I've also noticed is the moment the label is applied, it becomes, I don't, I don't know, the, the term isn't cop out, but it becomes an instant reason, a trigger point to step back. I can't because. Whereas in the past, they would have gone, I don't have a label to attach to why I find this hard. I just find this hard, so I'm going to make do. And so life was often difficult because they're trying to figure out how to make themselves work in a society that doesn't fit itself to ADHD people. But at the same time, I do see these people who otherwise had that growth mentality or that growth mindset of, okay, it's not natural, it's not easy, but I'm going to find a way to make it work. Once they've got the label, it's like, well, I'm not going to even bother trying because I know that I can't because I am a fill in the blank. So I think there's a, there's a blessing and a curse there in terms of labels. We love them, 
because they help us make sense of ourselves, but they can also easily become an excuse or a reason to step back, to not try. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the way we're engineered is, you know, people call it laziness, but really it's efficiency. Like we should be preserving energy because we're preparing for the day we have to go out and find some food or the apocalypse or do something that requires us to have a, a lot of energy. So I think when it comes to a label, it, it enables us to have lazy thinking or efficient thinking, which is yeah. I am that, oh, therefore I don't need to expend any. And I, know, I find that with, since I've become aware of it, it's always been a superpower as a business owner, as a, as a fighter pilot was great. But now when you're trying to write books or be academic, I use it as an excuse. And I'm like, the reason I can't write that chapter this afternoon is because of my ADHD. That's just a cop out. If you just sit there and you just slow down and start, you will come along and, and you will be able to do it. So even when you know these things, even when you have some awareness of what we're like as people, how about you? Do you ever have moments where you find that things really hard? Well, you become disengaged or is life just a breeze for you, mate? No, it's not a breeze. Um, I do find I've got massive capacity. So I, I know within myself that I can carry a lot, as in lots of moving parts, lots of spinning plates. So I can do four and five events a week, be on three, four, five, six flights in a couple of states, a couple of countries, and I can do that. But there comes a point where, um, and I've got to be mindful of the sort of things that get added to my plate that have disproportionate drain of energy. And like just this week, and we were chatting before we went live on air, I am tired. I am more tired in the last two and a half weeks than I think I've ever been. And it's a whole combo of factors. It's the fact that I'm there are lots of events and speaking things, but it's end of year tax stuff right now. So it's like, oh my. So like <laughs> I hate dealing with admin. Like admin just exhausts me like nothing else. So like I'm dealing with accountants in America, accountants in Australia. I've got a book coming out in a few months. I'm dealing with publicists both in America and Australia, publishers in America and Australia. Like it's just, there is so much going on. And all those things require that really detailed admin sort of focus, which to me is my least favorite way to spend time and energy. Like I had an event yesterday and I got to the event. And I'm like, I'm ready for this, but I'm only just ready. I'm like, how funny that I'm so busy doing all the other stuff that I actually can't stand doing, but you have to do. Yeah. It's just, it's the perfect storm. And I get to an event, this is the stuff that pays the bills. Yep. And I didn't feel like I was ready as I wanted to be because my head was just scattered. And I had this moment last night. So I'd, I'm doing a website overhaul. That's fun. Website, oh, they're the worst, honestly. So um, I haven't done a website overhaul for four years. So it was time. And so I went, I, I put an email together last night for my web designer and graphic designer just to have a bit of a game plan of what we're going to do. And I'd spent two and a half hours writing this email, really detailed. I'd compiled all the elements, all the assets, all the images in one spot, one email. This is at 11.25 p.m. You'll know this feeling because you've probably been there. I went to press send and I hit the wrong button and deleted the whole email. It's like, and it's funny, like it's, it, it was only, it's not a little It's thing. like a shot of pain oh, when something like that happens. <laughs> and I instantly just went, are you serious? I feel like I almost cried. Like I was, I'm about to break. I'm just done. And so my, my wife was like, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? Because she's like, she doesn't see me get to that point often. But I, I've noticed in the last few weeks that I certainly, to in answer the question, certainly get to that place. It doesn't happen often, but where I just feel like there's just too much going on. Regardless of capacity, it's just too much. So I'm in that mode at the moment. And part of it's just, it's a perfect storm. And it's a couple of weeks and it will pass. But I certainly feel that literally right now today. You notice that in the military as well, just how easy it is for people with high capacity to ex ex pull the rubber band beyond the comfort level. And it's a very easy walk to extend yourself out there to work hard. But ultimately, I call it the 100 points. We've only got 100 points of energy. So if we're spending 20 today, we've got to find 20 back tomorrow. And 
I think that's where emotions are wonderful. I think if we're starting to experience emotions rather than feelings, we're starting to get to a point where we're our ledger's full of stuff that we shouldn't do. If we're in the feelings phase and we we might be just feeling a bit tired or feeling a little bit stressed, but not actually stressed, then that's a really a really good balance. Yeah. Let's go back. You just mentioned about a new book. What's this book number nine? Eight? Book nine? ten. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Wow. So book number ten. Clearly, there's a difference between book number one yeah. and book number ten, right? <laughs> yep, absolutely. So this journey. What can we do to help inspire people that are on their own life journey? Whether it's speaker, whether it's entrepreneur, whether it's a professor, whatever it is, everyone has their thing, right? So in terms of that journey, which is a journey of what, 18, 19 years, well, go, yeah. let's go back to eight years old, nearly 30 years, right? Yeah. What was the journey like between each one of those books? What did it feel like? Did it feel like a, when you look back on it, does it feel like it was a blink of an eye? Like just talk us through the, how one person writes 10 books. <laughs> so every book is a bit different in terms of what it requires. So few of the books I've written will be, I guess, what you'd call seminal works. They're like a thing that I'll spend three years, I'll go deep. I'll write, because it's a newish topic, a new area. So it's like, you got to dig the well deep because you want to be speaking from, you don't want to speak from the tip of the iceberg. You don't want to get up on stage and just share the little bit you know, but you just hope people don't ask too many questions because that's all you know about the topic. Like if you're going to go into a new area, you want to go very deep. So every few years I'll write a book that's one of those. And the next book coming up is exactly that. So it's been three and a half years. So I think the tally of things, I do like a few tallies. I guess it helps me quantify just the effort involved. So I've read 126 books for this one, 1,260-something journal articles and academic pieces. Like, So I've read a lot. So it's taken a lot of energy and I've gone very deep. So you didn't just go to chat GPT and say, I did please not. write me a book on well, human behavior. <laughs> up until, like, in fact, the last draft I finished in late October last year. So that was even before chat GPT existed. Hey? So, <laughs> but yeah, so this has been a very taxing book, whereas the one I wrote before that probably only took me about three or four months to put together. It's taxing because of the complexity, right? Yeah. Like it's trying to explain yep. something in a way that makes, I'm not sure if you ever come across a book called Proof of Heaven, no. uh, written by a neurosurgeon in the US that suffered an encephalitis and was brain dead for seven days. And through that effectively transitioned into purgatory and lived in heaven. Okay. Uh, and then came back and he tells a story, like whether you believe it or not, but the story is the complexity of that level of spirituality and your awareness is humanly impossible yeah, to wow. explain us in terms of how we communicate and how we connect. So I presume writing a book which covers some of the deep complexity of humanity to make it consumable yep. is incredibly hard without losing the depth at Correct. the same time. Yeah. So for me, I mean, the beautiful thing is when you get to the simplicity on the other side of complexity, you've sat in the complexity, you've considered, you've thought, this is why I'll never use ghostwriters. I have to write my stuff because it's the writing process, that, that crucible of like teasing out ideas and philosophies and looking for angles where I see things differently, or there's a counterpoint to what's maybe been shared previously. And then getting to the point where that can become a simple, concise idea that's compelling at the other side of all that complexity, that's what you get paid the big bucks for. Like anyone can make simple things complex. That's what academics typically do. But you can make things simple without making them simplistic. That's the key. So you want to acknowledge the complexity of life, 
but also get past the point where you just get bogged down in that and you can find principles that are transferable and compelling on the other side of that. So that's the big part of this process for me. And this one's been the hardest book I've ever written by far. So, and the second most challenging book was probably one that I read a decade ago called Winning the Battle for Relevance, which was like the, it was the transition book from speaking about generational change and just speaking about innovation, future trends and disruption and how to gear up for change. And so that was, again, like a line in the sand. This is my like a new area for me content wise. So I went really deep and that was a lot of research. So I think every three or four books has been one of those sort of dig the world deep type books and they are taxing. Whereas I had a book that came out 2019 and from an Aussie perspective, the reason I wrote this book is because we just had the Banking Royal Commission and the big topic of the time was trust. You had institutions that had lost trust with their consumers and with stakeholders that had that social license to operate and you know, being eroded because of the things they had done or not done. And so I'm like, this is a really timely topic. And so I basically thought I need to speak into this because it's such a useful thing for me to have a voice in because it, it draws together so much of what I've talked about for the last few years, but ties into what's happening right now, front of mind for leaders. So I wrote a book called The Case for Character, which is all about how to build trust when people are skeptical. I smashed that together in, what was it all up? I think it was about six weeks. I did the bulk of the final draft on a flight to Canada and back. Like, and that's a long flight. So I had a lot of time. But like I just say so things like that, sometimes you just smash a book out. So from conception, I remember speaking at a conference in India and this um, Paul Polman from Unilever was speaking at the um, opening of the conference. He spoke about trust. I'm like, this, is, this keeps coming up time and time again, every event I'm at. And I had this thought just before I got on the flight to come home from India, I should write a book about that. No, no someone should write a book about that. And I thought, why not me? That's, why not? Um, I'm like, oh, that'd be a great topic. Why don't I do that? So from there to when the book came out was all up probably three and a half months. So that was a really quick process. But then you've got other ones that take years, like the most recent one. The last few podcasts, and, and for those listening, you'll connect with this. We've spoken a lot about people who create successful lives out of necessity, that there's a consequence to the lives that they've had before. They have may have come back from policing or from a, yep. from a life of poverty. But there's always like this consequence of nothing that is a motivator. I don't get that sense from you, though. I get there's a sense of proliferation of growth. If you ask those people what's the point of doing it, they would say, well, the point is because I don't want that. So if someone said to you, Michael, what's the point of everything you do? How would you answer that question? I think, and it goes back to where we started. I think there's a sense of calling. Like, I feel like I was made to do this stuff. Like I really, really do. And it's funny when COVID hit, I remember having some friends over for dinner just before the first series of lockdowns. And this one mate of mine, he's had three or four different startups. He's had the whole roller coaster of huge valuations of these companies and it just crashes. So on paper, super wealthy and then nothing. Like he's been through this cycle a few times. And so he came over and he sort of went through the process that he's gone through over the years as he's ridden that roller coaster and he sort of asked me the questions that he's asked himself at these various points. He's like, okay, so COVID's hit. We'd lost, and you know what it's like. We were I remember in the us same having boat. a beer. We, we were lost the at whole some deal. function. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere. And what you're sort of saying it was like almost like backs to the wall. Like, I, oh, yeah. I can't see a career in speaking you know, moving forward. Well, like, yeah, our profession was outlawed yeah. in the space of 26, 28 hours. Mm. And so if my calendar got obliterated, we were in a really tough spot financially at the time because we'd just finished a renovation that went way over budget. We'd moved back into our house two and a half weeks before COVID hit. 
And it still wasn't even quite finished, but we'd run out of cash. We'd have to borrow some money from my mum just to finish it off. It was it was like a proper disaster. <laughs> Biggest regret of my life was doing this renovation still. Shocker. Anyway, so, <laughs> but I remember we got back in and we thought, okay, the bloody thing's done, but we've just got to, we've got nothing now. We've got to build again, but we can do this. We've built before. We can just knuckle down, be sensible, be frugal, and then rebuild the cash and pay off our debts and all the rest. And then COVID hits two and a half weeks later and everything goes. And I had a relatively healthy pipeline. In fact, I really, like, I think that was what March, May was going to be a cracking month. I'm like, just May alone will get us back into the black again. I'm like, awesome. And then it all went. So we're at that spot where we're like, we've lost everything. We're now financially way behind, which we're not used to. We're, we're pretty, my wife and I are sensible. We save, we have buffers. We had none of the stuff we normally have. And that was wasn't even a case of us being stupid. It was just, there was a circumstance in life that just everything went wrong all at once. So that was great. And so this mate came over and he said, look, the spot you're in, what would you do if you can't speak? And this was the question. It was like, let's look at some game planning of what else you could do. And honestly, I'm like, I have no idea. Like I don't, I genuinely don't know what my career would be if it wasn't this. Because I've done this for 20 years. I worked in a marketing role for a tech company for probably two years after uni. And then I've done this. That's all I've done for a long time. And I love it. And so there is that sense of, you know, if not this, what would I do? I don't know. What compels me? It's certainly not the sense of loss. Like if I didn't have this, I wouldn't be of any value or anything like that. I don't think my identity is too tied to it. In fact, that was one of the encouraging things from COVID is that when the accolades and the stages and the lights and the applause and the book signing cues were taken away, I didn't really care. Whether having the money all gone when we were in such a tight spot, that was hard. Although interestingly, I didn't, I wasn't worried as much as I was angry. I was surprised at myself when COVID hit. I went to victim mode really, really? fast. I was really surprised at yeah. that because like, I don't mind hard stuff, but hard stuff when it's not fair, Yeah, I didn't have the tools to figure out how to be constructive in that mode. So and it, The universe throws that at you on purpose. I think if there's a gap in your life where you haven't experienced that, it's, you know, and, and maybe that's what the pandemic was all about, picking up all the Michaels of the world and saying, well, here's a shit sandwich. You know, this is what it feels like when you have nothing. Just yeah. to have that empathy for those that are in that situation because obviously everything pivoted very quickly the virtual yeah. started and we all kind of bounced back and morphed and entered this like literally at warp speed the digital world and i think Correct. speakers have some authority when it comes to talking about digital transformations digital strategies because it was probably an industry yes everyone went to zoom but not because their life depended on it whereas you were telling a story of you know, getting the takeaway cups from a Chinese to make the TV fit properly in the yeah, bedroom with right. paint cans and yes. turning oh, gosh, your cupboard yes. into a studio. Yeah. You know, that's real innovation and real change. So in terms of moments in your, so that's one moment, right? Was there ever a time where you felt that it wasn't going to work or did you just have that deep well of this is just going to be? Because obviously you invested over this philosophy again in life where your 20s is where you can invest in yourself and it doesn't really cost much. You can live on a couch and yeah. no one has any expectations of you. And as you get through each subsequent decade, it's a little bit harder to kind of do a full reset. And I think the, you know, for me, connecting with being a fighter pilot at the age of five, you were the speaker yeah. at the age of eight, we get a lot of benefit from that yep. to be able to commit a lot of learning, a lot of directed energy into creating that. Yeah, Old transitions later in life are a little bit harder. Let's have a look at this through the lens of, let's just say we're talking to someone that's lived a very rich life. They've decided they want to share their story and they're starting Michael's journey at the age of 40, let's just say, which might sound a little bit like how my life's panned out. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you 
close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. In terms of the investment in your 20s, because I guess you have to create a learned experience because you haven't, let's be honest, haven't yeah, lived. No 22-year-old no no. has, has lived, right? So in terms of, you know, articulating that, in terms of finding the goals and turning it into something that's usable, what are some of the habits or techniques that you have that actually deliver execution? Not just ideas, not just concepts, but those routines you spoke about earlier. What are some of those that you might be able to share with us? Well, I think there's a couple of things there. So, I mean, if you're talking about the content side of things, so if you're coming to speaking as a 40-year-old, you've got a lot of experience and wealth of wisdom that I didn't have as a 22-year-old, but also you've got things that I also didn't have as a 22-year-old that make it difficult. You've probably got a mortgage. You may well have a family. You've got commitments that as a 22-year-old I didn't have. So it was a gift to start at that age. And it is funny how at the time everyone's like, you know, I felt so young. I was the youngest person in every room for years. I was the youngest person in most boardrooms that I was presenting to for years. And all of a sudden I've noticed in the last little while, I'm not anymore. <laughs> so that's interesting. I'm now like, see, you've got this funny sort of window of time where people say, oh, I can't be a speaker now because I'm too young. Yep. I'll be taken seriously. And then like, I feel like you've got seven minutes where you're the right age. Yeah. And now, now I'm too old. I'm like, well, what is it? Like, yeah. Come on. Like, which is it? The reality is you can be any age and make this work. But I guarantee you though, yep. because of that vision, because of that sense of purpose, Whoever you came into contact with, those people would be out in the world. And if they heard something that may have been applicable to you, they would have recommended you. They would have, You would have created this enormous leverage from the network of people you touch because yep. of everyone they knew, they remembered you because you were the speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wanted to be the speaker. You were grateful for the opportunities. Where so, this sounds terrible, but it's honest. A lot of people are quite forgettable. Yeah, right. And I think that that's a choice. You don't have to be forgettable. And I guess that's why villages exist, because we're not forgettable yep. within our village, but we are forgettable relative to 8 billion people on the planet, right? Yep. So there, that commitment to fulfilling purpose in an unwavering focus, I think, is, is a fundamental to anyone being successful. You might be selling bright pink underpants, but if that's all you do and you are fully committed to that journey. And every person who knows you knows you sell pink underpants. The day one of those people hears someone looking for some pink underpants, you're going to get the job. Sorry, I digress. So let's talk about the habits, mm. turning your lived experience into a learned experience and what they can compress Michael's first 10 years into the first <laughs> two years. Well, I would say firstly, get really curious. So it's funny. I was looking for anything I could to learn how to be a good communicator. So I would listen to good communicators. I would read the books. I would attend events. I was a sponge. I was open. I'm like, okay, I need to figure out how to do this. This is a whole new skill set. And it's so funny. So I, um, I, I joined so PSA, which was at the time the National Speakers Association. And I remember my second meeting, which was at a hotel in Sydney, they I can't remember which the, what the name of the hotel was now, but they were basically getting rid of the PSA New South Wales State Chapter Library. So who knew they had one? They did. So it was a library of every cassette tape. This is how old it is. Cassette tapes of all the meetings that had for the previous 15 years. Wow. And so like someone, it was their job every week to schlep this, every month, sorry, to schlep the stuff in from home. It was in cardboard boxes and there were some CDs or some cassette tapes. It was all ba or basically anyone who had spoken at the national conferences or the state events for years. And so I was there and they said, look, we've got all these cassettes. We're tired of carting them around. If anyone would like to have some, feel free. And so I sort of hung back thinking, I'm the new kid here. And I'm, again, like 15 years younger than everyone in the room. I don't want to appear presumptuous. I'll just hang back and I'm sure others will take them and I'll just 
take whatever's left. Literally, not a soul took any of them. I'm wow. like, well, if you guys aren't, I am. So I remember backing the car up and I took every box, <laughs> every cassette, every CD, and I took them all home. I was like the skidding tires out of them. I'm like, I better take this in case anyone tells me I can't, right? <laughs> So I'm just going to go with this. And so the next six months, that was my wow. apprenticeship. I just listened. But I how listened powerful is that? Oh, yeah. But I think that's the thing, like, that not just curious but also hungry. I was hungry to learn. And I think for any individual, and this is regardless of the stage you're at, I think the two H's, the two things that always guide me is stay humble and stay hungry. And if you lose either of those two things, that's the danger zone. And I think the challenge for anyone, once you get to the point where you've had notoriety and success, you can actually, the appetite for either of those two things starts to get dulled a bit, like, because you know a lot now. And you I think the hunger goes for sure. Easy. And I noticed that myself coming into 50 now, you're like, it's not that you read everything, but you start to see the repetition and you yeah. start to see the conditioned learning that exists out there in thought leader world. Yeah. And, and it's almost like everyone starts to leverage off each other's intellectual property and you start to see these themes and it's like, hang on a minute, yeah, there must be something new here. Or, But when you go into the really, like we talked about the alien intelligence instead of yeah, artificial yeah. intelligence, all of a sudden that's like, whoa, 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 hang on, that's, you're a lunatic. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, why not? You know, like yeah. we should be curious about some of that fringe stuff yeah. as well. I know I get curious about it, but equally I know in mainstream we can't talk about it. So yeah. how do we manage that? There's a bit of courage there, I think, in terms of telling that story. So how do you balance that between your own conditioning as a human being, conditioning in the corporate speaking space where you've got to be controversial, but not too controversial yeah, yeah. and being true to yourself. Yeah. I think ideally you want to be drawing on wells that are outside of the echo, outside of what everyone else around you is reading. So I try and read things that not everyone else is reading. And um, that's hard because I tend to gravitate toward the same journal articles, the same books that you know, others are reading. Whereas if you want to have truly original thought, you've got to challenge your thinking and read stuff that has nothing to do with your profession, for instance, and is outside of that. And I must say in the last little while, I've not done that as much because I've been in research mode for this new book. So I've had that much to read. I haven't had time to read anything that's outside of sort of my normal frame of reference. But I think that's important because otherwise it becomes this echo chamber of everyone reading the same stuff, thinking the same ideas, having the same conversations. And there isn't enough original thought there to create something that's fresh and compelling. And I think too, just placing yourselves in environments where you've got to listen to people who stretch your thinking and where it's uncomfortable. And I saw a beautiful example of this. I was speaking at an event last week and one of the women in the room, her name is Imelda Roach or Roche. And so a lot of listeners may not know her, but in an Aussie context, she started the most incredible organization. So she and her husband started Nutramedics oh, from wow. scratch years yeah, ago, incredible. built it into this incredible organization. They then sold that, I think, to Avon or Tupperware, a big global brand for a huge amount of money. They then went into property development. They've got a whole series of estates up in the Hunter Valley. So Hunter Valley Gardens is their business. Wow. They started it from scratch, like amazing visionaries. So I don't know how old Imelda is. I would guess, and maybe she's in her 80s. It's hard to tell because she's so full of life, right? But <laughs> she sat at this conference and I watched her sit there for the entirety of the two-day conference writing notes. I'm like, that's what I want to be like. Yeah. You know, when I'm at that age... I want to be so open to learning new stuff. Mm. Never to think, this is hard, particularly when you've got a temperament that's a, a little bit more of like, I'm a, I'm a judgment temperament if you look at all the Myers-Briggs stuff. But like to always stay in the position of student rather than critic. And I find as I get older, it's easy to slip into critic mode. Whereas how do I constantly stay humble and open to different perspectives and points of view? Not that you'll take everything on board. I mean, I think it's, it's humble certainty, knowing what you're about, knowing what you can add, knowing your spot of the market, the voice that you've got, but also being open to have that challenged. You talk about that unlimited capacity 
And up until about three years ago, that was the person I felt I was in that there is absolutely nothing you could throw. From checking myself out of hospital at four o'clock in the morning to speaking on stage at eight o'clock and driving up the freeway to not miss a speaking gig. And, And then I felt like with COVID and I felt that maybe it's getting older and you just said something really insightful there about moving from student to critic. It's like you start to get to a point where you have seen a lot and you start to hear the same things. And it's almost like you start to get a little bit like, look, it doesn't work. All right. Even though it's like you kind of lose your patience. It's like the 96 billion neurons we have in our brain. We've almost filled them up and they start to get a little bit like, look, there's no cataloging left in the system anymore, mate. And I find particularly having to be purposeful around optimism. And it gets me thinking, just generally speaking, how having always been naturally optimistic, now I have to be purposefully optimistic. And I think with the way the world's going now, there's a degree of focusing on being optimistic rather than happen, happen by good fortune. You're optimistic. You can sense the optimism, the way you approach life. Where does your optimism come from and your faith in humanity? It's so interesting. So I would actually say I'm not naturally optimistic. I'm actually naturally quite not cynical is probably too strong a word, but yeah, I'm not the Pollyanna life is great. Like you look at people, like I love like Lisa McGuinness-Smith, one of the most beautiful souls on the planet, right? But she's just this natural optimist, seeing the best in people, best in situations. I have to, it's an act of the will to do that. That's not actually my natural state. In fact, I know when I'm getting tired and I haven't got enough margin in my life. And that's been the last few days because I start to get really easily irritated and impatient and people become a nuisance. I just get out of my way. I've got stuff to do. And I like that. That's one of my tells. I'm like, when I can't just value and love people in my surroundings, that's a red flag. And so, and I, that sort of victim mentality, bit cynical, bit skeptical, all that stuff starts to bubble up. And I'm like, that's a sign that I'm sort of, I need some time, time to just sort of rest. You know what? Historically, we talk about a Sabbath time. There's time to just stop and exhale and actually recharge. And I think that's in terms of, you know, you asked before about specific habits and routines. I think one of the things that I have done really well over the years and I try to continue to do well is create space. So, I mean, it's funny, we're talking on a podcast today, but I, I listen to podcasts, but I'm also very intentional about having car trips and plane trips where I am switched off. I'm not listening to a podcast. I'm not reading a book. I'm not scrolling through news headlines on my phone. I'm just in silence. I let my brain, because, you know, I think our brains get so overwhelmed. And if you look at what happens in our sleep, you know, the synaptic pruning, they call it, where essentially our brains prune off stuff that it doesn't need from the day before. So if you're not sleeping enough, that's firstly a problem because your brain's not actually pruning the stuff that's making it feel clogged up, but also creating space in our time to just stop, look around, like don't have your ear pods in. Don't be listening to another thing. Don't be reading another article. Don't be looking at your phone. That's hard because we're all addicted to our phones. But like that's been a routine for me. So there's that. And then journaling is a big thing. I'm a big journaler. So most days I'll spend time sort of praying and journaling. And that's just a chance to process on paper what's happening in the world and in my world and what I'm learning and what I'm struggling with. And I find that incredibly helpful. If nothing else, it's a great reference point. I'll look back sort of six months on and go, oh, wow. There's been progress. Is that new? Is journaling something you've done from being a youngster or is that yeah, something that's... when uh, I was pretty young. So I remember hearing, like a, a, I don't know, it must have been something I'd either heard or read as, I'm trying to place now how old I was based on the car I was driving because I remember talking with a mate about it at the time, probably 17. So I just had my so P, P plates. We were driving around. I remember I can picture exactly where we were and we're talking about this thing we just read or heard. And the quote was, and it's quite sort of gendered really, which is not great, but it was like great men have always journaled or something said that, but great people throughout history, one of the common denominators is that they journal. And I remember just thinking it was as simple as this, well, 
I'd like to do something great. I'm going to start journaling. Like it was, it was as, <laughs> it was as complex as that. And so it was just realizing the value of reflecting, taking, creating space and time for reflection. And so I have, and heaven forbid anyone ever found them and read them, there'd be some embarrassing stuff, you know, like imagine if someone read your journal from your like, late teens and early twenties, but like truly there are boxes of these things in under our house. I don't know what I'll ever do with them. Journaling is just Kids been are going to have a ball with it. If you want to do something great, journal. I, I think that's quite telling that you heard on the radio, the radio said, if you want to be or do something great, do this. Now, clearly there was a trigger there, which is you heard the words, if you want to do something great, or yeah. if you want to be great. For most people that would wash over them. I remember when I was a kid, I read books about empires, whether it was the Byzantine Empire, the Persian, yep. the Spartan, the Ottomans, the, the British Empire, thousands of books on empire. And I think I fashioned myself as a fairly egotistical, you know, oh, I'd love to build an empire. Never got one. Uh, <laughs> but for me, just when you said that, I felt that there was something great in, that existed in the world, that this concept of greatness existed. Is that something that you felt that there is something greater yeah. than just day to day? Well, I think it depends on how you want to take that. So I think that sense of greater in that notion that I think we've got the capacity to do great things, things that leave a mark, things that leave a legacy. So I think from a young age, for some reason, I was I had that sort of like overly serious mentality. I mean, just chill out, hey? But <laughs> I, you know, I, that was even as a kid, I was sort of thinking, what can I do that's going to just be significant and make that mark. I guess I was mindful of that. I don't know why. I don't know what it is that sort of planted that seed in my mind, but I guess maybe there was that sense of calling. I think in terms of like there being more than just what we see, I think from a faith perspective, that's a big thing behind what drives me, that notion. Was that, that something, faith, something that you connected with personally or was it a family? Bit of both. So I grew up in an environment where sort of Christian faith was like in the atmosphere at home. So we went to a Catholic church growing up. When I got to teenage years, I was sort of keen for something a bit more, not relevance, not the right word, but like in, in that environment, all my mates had drifted away. There weren't many young people at that church. It was first sort of a stand there and you go through the motions type thing. So I, I thought if this is real, if this is real to me, I need to, there needs to be something that feels real as well. So that was for but me. you felt it. You could feel correct. the gravity out yeah. there. You could, the yep. hum, the om. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. I guess as an adult, probably 16 years of age, made that commitment as an adult to be a person of faith. And so that's been a huge part of what drives me. So that sense that, you know, if we're made for a purpose and we're made to do things that are useful and contribute and that the value of what we do outlives our time physically in these bodies, that just means every day counts mm. and every interaction, every person counts. And I think that's certainly something that, that guides so much of what I do, that idea that, that we will be held to account for what we do with what we've been given. And I've been given a fair bit. I've just been born, I don't know, in Australia with functioning faculties and a brain and the ability to think well and can put together ideas. I mean, I, I get it. I feel like I've been given a lot to do stuff with. If I don't do something with that, that's wasteful. It's negligent. It's not good enough. So I think that's, that's probably what compels me, that idea. If I've been given a lot, what am I going to do with it that's going to be useful? So this is where we start to step out of kind of mainstream corporate speaking type yeah. of concepts into, you know, more universal concepts yeah. where, you know, there, there are certain people I think that, are touched or put here for a specific reason, the ability to influence a large group of people to get the best out of those. There's certain pastors that are that way inclined. There's, yeah, I certainly notice for me, you know, I thought life was hard and I thought things were difficult, you know, being a fighter partner, business owner, but it wasn't until I started to articulate my thoughts, I realized how hard thinking actually is. It's such a deeper level of thinking. It's almost like the calcium comes off when you, when you start to do it. So to be able to think like that, like Einstein, like these people through life, 
can't have two speakers in a room and not mention Einstein, right? <laughs> Correct. <Yep. laughs> and that faith, like how much easier does it make living each day when you understand implicitly that you're not everything, that there is something more that you're in service to? How does that make you feel and help you get through each day? Well, I think it's significant in so many ways. It, it gives purpose to randomness. You know, when things seem hard or when life seems to go against you, it's, it's often that sense of not why is this happening to me, this idea of like, why am I, the ha- why am I in that victim fair. mode, but yeah. why is this happening to me particularly? What, am I need to, what do I need to learn from this? And so you use the language before of like, it's the universe sending stuff to you. And depending on how you want to approach it, to me, there's purpose then in even really difficult seasons and challenges. And so that's, for me, from a faith perspective, that adds meaning to other, otherwise what could be random chaos. Now, that doesn't mean I read or over-spiritualize something into every circumstance and situation. I think that's also... It can be a bit of a crutch. It can be unhelpful. Uh, but I think that sense of like seeing that there is a purpose beyond just what we can see is helpful. I mean, the other thing for me too is that that sense that it's not all up to me. There's something very liberating about that. And I don't see that as a reason to shrink back and go, well, I'll just let stuff happen. I mean, I still, I mean, I remember my pastor of mine years ago said, you know, pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. Mm. I'm like, I feel like that's a helpful thing to, like I do that. I'm like, I've got to be intentional and purposeful and diligent and disciplined. But at the same time, there's a lot that I can't do. There's a lot that it's favor, it's opportunity that... It's grace that like if when you have a sense of it's like that tailwind propelling you along, I think people pick up on that too. And there's not that sense of I've got to create and strive and make this and conquer. It's like, I'm just going to do what I can do. I'm going to do it with excellence. Mm. But there's a sense of grace and favor in your life that just means you get ushered into situations that otherwise you shouldn't be in. And the beauty is then when you get there, ideally, the pride reflex doesn't kick in because you know that you didn't get there on your own. And so there's not a sense that I've, I made it on my own, therefore I've got to maintain it on my own and that I should be proud of what I've built. And I think holding these things loosely, that's probably a big part of what's allowed me to get to where I'm at, but also hopefully stay there. Reading and deconstructing decision-making, which is a big part of being a fighter pilot and trying to understand why we're really good at decisions. And one of the things I've sort of learned is this whole, you know, the origination of a decision is ultimately our subconscious, like 95%. If you look at an fMRI, the origination of the thought that ends up being a decision is how we perceive the world around us. And I think from where you're coming from and how you perceive the world simplifies decision-making in terms of giving it context. And I think where we're lost and we don't have a perception because, you know, if you, if you look at Anil Seth's work around consciousness and being, you know, he'll say that there is no reality. Everything is a controlled hallucination. Right. right yeah. Uh, so therefore, because it has to be, everything we see is our construct of it. It's a version of reality. And I think that I only connected with spirituality sort of mid-30s. Didn't yeah, right. Yeah, I was, again, Catholic, but dogma by the book, uh-huh, do this, yeah. yes, sir, no, sir, knock out the sacraments and away you go. Yeah. Whereas when you actually connect with spirituality about the broader concept of a higher, it's not authority, but just a higher entity. And the concept that was taught to me was instantly it's not about you anymore. You, yeah. you can see yourself in a third person, almost like a, your best friend. Yep. And you don't have to take things personally anymore. It's not, well, what about me or why me or you don't respect me? And all the anger and the negativity is caught up in self, but step out of self. And all of a sudden it's, it's just a thing. Yep, absolutely. It's just a, it's a perception. Yeah. Michael, quickly to finish off the podcast, futurist, two things I'd love to finish off on. One is what does the future look like? There's a lot of fear. A lot of fear in the future. AI is going to take over the world. It's going to kill us all. Interest rates can't afford to pay my mortgage. The future doesn't look great in terms of how people perceive it at the moment. And then let's finish off with the book. 
and what we're going to see yeah. uh, in October. So what can you tell us about the future? Well, I think the future is certainly there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's the reality for all of us. As you look at the next six to 12 months, I had a briefing call with a client yesterday in their events in September. And they said, oh, so what do you think you'll talk about? I'm like, I don't know. Like if you have a futurist right now who tells you in, so what we're recording this in June. So if you have a futurist telling you that in four or five months time, this will be their keynote presentation, they're not doing their job. Like There will be some patterns I can tell you are probably what I'll generally cover, but there's so much happening so fast. I think that that level of uncertainty is something that we're all feeling and all sensing. But at the same time, there are some things that are not changing. I think we've got to keep those two things in tension. Human nature isn't changing. And our need and desire to connect with each other, to feel loved, to give love, to be a part of community, this stuff isn't changing. And so I think we've got to consistently have this mentality of what, what is changing so we can be ready for it, but also not get overwhelmed by the fact that everything bears no resemblance to the past because that's just not, that's not true. And so I think that's helpful if we just try and keep going, what's the human stuff that doesn't change? And then outside of that, continue to try and upskill ourselves. And you, when you talk about AI, there's often this quote that I hear thrown around these days that, you know, your job's not going to be taken by AI. It'll be taken by a human who knows how to use AI. Uh, so there's a need for us to continue to upskill. But at the end of the day, the AI tools most of us are seeing in the workplace, uh, they become a co-pilot. They, you work with them. Um, but the human stuff, the stuff that makes us us as human beings, so it's empathy and intuition and judgment and deep creativity – that's stuff that only humans can do. And the seed of you know, creativity is the human soul. And machines ain't got a soul. They're not sentient. They're not conscious, even though they look like they are. And so I think to that extent, take heart in the fact that the things that are uniquely human and most beautiful about humans aren't changing. But that doesn't mean we don't need to continually update ourselves and upskill ourselves. So that's sort of the tension I'm seeing right now. So lots of reason for optimism, but there's also some challenges. I mean, talking about interest rates and economic stuff. I mean, there's certainly, I guess it's a hard time, but the reality is we've seen this before. Now, the challenge, of course, is anyone under the age of about 38 hasn't really seen this before. You know, we've not seen interest rates go up this high in that line. You, or, you, or having to try hard to get a job. Correct. Your entire career has been in a time of essentially plentiful jobs and relatively good job security, or at least economic security meant you could swap and change jobs. Now, that's in the US, you'll find some people are in the Great Recession. There was that time, that period of time where it was tricky. Different in different parts of the world, like in Greece, some parts of Europe, there were a few years where it was economically really tight. But on balance, most Western economies, it's been pretty good for a long time. So there is no doubt this is going to be a time that's going to be unfamiliar to a lot. It'll be stressful, but hey, you know what? As we said before, every season's got a purpose. And I think for some of us, this purpose will actually be, it'll cause us to get more frugal, a bit more discipline with our money. A lot of people are pretty bloody lazy with money. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, just to carve out the largesse. Splash you know, it out, you know? Even just stop buying plastic. Like there's so many benefits to the world for being frugal at the moment. Yeah. And I think it is. It's a rebalance. Yep. You just don't need much. And given an infinite bucket of money, like there's a series on Netflix at the moment about a woman that won the lotto, huh. $40 million and ended yep. up broke, right? There you go. Like yep. more is insatiable. There's always more. So I think you're right. But equally, do you think we've lost the ability to some degree to connect? I mean, I certainly find with family, my kids, friends and the... My daughter just went to a party the other day. I said, how's the party? She said, it was boring. Everyone was on their phone. She's only 13. Yeah. What's the future look like for us in terms of how we connect? Well, I think we are noticing, and that story is a perfect example of this. We're noticing that we've lost some of those skills of connecting. And I think the pandemic years had a big impact on that. You look at 15, 16, 17-year-olds who, for a period of time, their only connection was online or in video gaming platforms. And the number of them that turned to gaming for their sense of social connection 
was absolutely huge and it's remained that way. So the challenge with that is, of course, you can have that sense of community and connection digitally, but it's not the same as face-to-face. And if you look at any of the work from, say, Paul Zak, you know, he's a neuroeconomist looking at how our brains react when we engage with people face-to-face versus if you're engaging digitally, it's very different. Like the release of oxytocin that we have, that social bonding hormone, is something we get when we're face-to-face with someone who's just being transparent and vulnerable and real. There's that sense of I connect with you, I get it. I feel like we connect. You don't get that the same way online. And you certainly don't, you don't get that when there's a degree of inauthenticity. So I think we're seeing that some of those things have been lost and the digital filter's great. It's very, very you know, great. We can scale massively. We can do podcast interviews. We can do Zoom calls with thousands of people, but it's not the same as the face-to-face. So I think we're going to see a return to that. But I think in terms of the economic stuff as well, I think the really good thing that'll come out of the hardship is... You know, talk about hunger and humility. I think we'll probably see that probably come back in spades because you've got a lot of people, and I speak to employers every day, and you probably have the same conversations. Bosses will go, my staff just, there's not that sense of gratitude for having the role. Oh, absolutely. That is the huge issue right now yeah. is that, again, there's just more, more time off, more flexibility. Yeah goes back to the previous conversation about consequence. Sometimes, I don't know, you, you need a little bit there. It's hard to have those conversations, which is why I was interested to talk to you, which yeah. is you're very much on the aspirational side of motivation, yeah. not the stick side, yes, side of yeah. motivation. And the new book. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Is there, are you in published title or working title? So we're in published title. We've got a cover back in the last week or so as well. So it's called Mind Stuck. And the subtitle is Mastering the Art of Changing Minds. So the book is all around the psychology of stubbornness. So what is it that causes us to arrive at points of certainty? Like in goes to some of the stuff you shared about decision-making, a lot of what actually happens in our brains, how our brains arrive at points of certainty and decision. And then why does that flip over from coming certainty to stubbornness? And when people are in that stubborn mode of not being willing to rethink or change their mindset, how do you then try and encourage them to do so? So a lot of the focus of the work is looking at why don't people change even when they want to and know they should? And then how do you help people change for their own reasons? And people tell stories, don't they? I mean, what I find fascinating is these narratives we create for ourselves. Yeah. And what are some of the fundamentals? I mean, if someone is, because this is where alcohol abuse comes from, this is where addiction, it's masking the hidden truth about ourselves. Is there like an epiphany or is there a, is it a, an insidious thing? Like what is it that allows someone to transition out of that into, I guess, a growth mindset instead of a mind stuck yeah. mindset is it, what have you sort of discovered? I mean, the first thing is what doesn't work and what doesn't work is most of the stuff we tend to do. And so when you're trying to influence someone to change or convince or persuade them to change, what do we tend to do? We give evidence and logic and rational thought. This notion that if I can just give you the evidence or fill the knowledge gap that you haven't got, we assume that the reason you're doing this or thinking this is because you don't know something. So if I can just give you the information or the evidence, you'll see reason and change your mind. And so we spend so much time doing that. And yet the research shows us consistently, the more evidence and logic you give to someone whose mind's stuck, the more entrenched they get. So all the stuff around the backfire effect, this idea that you give someone more evidence that what they believe is crazy and they just dig their heels in more. And so the question then is what does work? And often it's about actually affirming autonomy, starting off giving people the freedom to change their minds without having to feel like they're stupid for having believed what they did. And yet we so often do that. We go into battles or, uh, or arguments or debates as a contest of the wills, we're going to try and beat the other Happens person. so often though. So often. I mean, look at the leadership of the world right now. Right. I mean, we're just having these, you know, people die based on these inane concepts. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And so it's realizing that if everything everyone thinks makes perfect sense to them, we've got to start there. 
So even if you think something is absolutely crazy or is not even serving you well, you might even be engaged in a mentality or belief system that's damaging you, but at some level you think it makes sense. And so we've got to step back from that and go, well, why? And firstly, give you the freedom to make sure that you feel you can change your mind without a loss of dignity. Because the moment you feel like your dignity is encroached upon, you'll back down or you'll shut down. And so a lot of it's about starting with dignity and affirming who people are before you try and change how they think. And also realizing that, you know, in many cases, they need to change at their own pace. And it's a case of you just guiding them along the process. And you know, looking at one of the things that the big things that stops people changing is fear. And it's not a fear of change. We often have this assumption everyone's afraid of change. We're not. We're afraid of we wouldn't loss. wouldn't go on holidays if we're afraid Correct. of change, right? Yeah, we're afraid of loss. So it's loss of certainty, a loss of status, a loss of power. When we feel like we're about to lose something, any employment to change becomes a threat and we double down. So it's reducing the loss rather than trying to give more evidence as to why someone should change. Oh, I'm with you. I call it the feel, think, do method. You know, yep. Whenever you have to shift somewhere or do something, you've got to start with a feeling, move it into the rational, the thought, and then actually yeah. do it. If you come at it any other way, the whole thing comes unstuck. So yeah, correct. that's profound, mate. I'm really looking forward to reading that. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Likewise. But one last question for you. Yeah. 14-year-old Michael is pondering his life as a, as a speaker <laughs> yeah. and he's having one of those moments. He's seeking inspiration, like an apparition. You're able to appear in front of this 14-year-old version of yourself. <laughs> what do you say? What do you say to either accelerate your journey, remove some of the bumps? Is there one piece of advice you'd give that younger version of yourself? That's hard to narrow down to one, isn't it? Because you want to give practical advice as well as sort of philosophical advice. You're busy advice. on the phone. You've only got yeah. uh, 30 seconds of attention span. You know, what, yeah, what, what I'd yourself? probably say, and it's something I think I knew at the age, but I didn't realize just how true it was, is this idea that public victories are always preceded by thousands of private ones. And so just do the stuff. Don't lose heart. Just keep doing the things where no one notices, no one's aware. Like so many of the battles in life are won in obscurity. And that's the hard thing in the early stages of any career you're doing things that no one notices, no one's applauding. And then there'll come a time where you get the award, you know, and you've had that experience and so have I, where you get the accolades of your industry. And the reality is people see that moment they don't see. Thousands of moments of just doing the thing, being disciplined, sticking at it. And I think that's what I would say to 14 year old me. It's like, I'd probably had, I was aware of that. I probably had heard or read that somewhere, but just that it is profoundly true. As uh, reading something that I cannot recall or I read it, cannot find it, but uh, the gist of it, was the pursuit of happiness is happiness. Yeah, wow. Happiness doesn't exist once you get it and you just, you're spot on. It's that journey. It's the joy of the small wins, those little moments. So if you're here in the US and you're looking for Michael, I know he loves to get on the plane and speak over here. I don't even need to give you his website because if you literally Google Michael McQueen, as <laughs> I did prior to this podcast, he is everywhere. He is absolutely everywhere. And whether it's doing a deep dive on human behavior, mindset. And I have to admit, I've heard a lot of futurists speak and I'm very impressed, mate, with your spin or your take on being a futurist, which is very, very grounded. And I call it the Jeff Bezos approach to the future where he says, at the end of the day, we need happy customers and we need to move boxes quickly. No matter what happens, that's never going to change. And by focusing on those things that we can control is very powerful. So thanks again, mate, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Michael McQueen, everybody, mind stuck will be out on Amazon, no doubt, in uh, October uh, later this year. Thanks, Indeed. mate. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few, and I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organisation that brings world-class speakers into your event or organisation to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, 
real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.